Welcome to Kindreds, a podcast for soul sisters. I'm Ashley Peterson. And I'm Katie Zay. We're kindred spirits talking all things faith, feminism, and friendship from our homes in the South. Hey, Ashley. Hey, Katie. We have been saying for a while now, definitely since 2020, but maybe even before that, that we wanted to spend an episode talking about grief. And Mm -hmm. here we are. Now seems like a good time to do it since it feels like grief is everywhere we look, to me anyway. There are losses from two and a half years of an ongoing pandemic, which has looked different for everyone. For some of us who've lost a loved one to COVID or are dealing with the effects of COVID on our own health, that grief might be acute. But there's also this constant, diffuse sense of loss felt on a collective scale by many of us brought on by this new normal of deferred celebrations, missed or canceled opportunities for connection, for joy, lost career opportunities for people, or the feeling that our government has abandoned us in its commitment to the public good. (laughs) Or is that just me? (laughs) No, it's not just you. (laughs) Yeah, all of that grief is real too. There's also the loss of our bodily autonomy brought on by the overturning of Roe, which personally affects over half our population and then ripples out to touch the lives of pretty much everyone in the U.S. If you are paying attention at all right now, grief is everywhere. So I want to start by reading a bit from Brene Brown's newest book, Atlas of the Heart. Have you read it? I haven't. I've seen it. I'm curious to hear how you're how you're liking it so far. Yeah, it's good. I got it. I think it came out around Christmas or so. So I've had it a few months and I am revisiting it during my own kind of grief exploration process because the whole book talks about giving language to the emotions we feel to help us articulate those emotions to each other better. And I find that idea really cool, like being able to give language to what we're feeling so that we can get those feelings kind of a place to live out of our body and into our relationships and kind of process them that way. So I think it's pretty cool. But in Atlas of the Heart, she writes about grief, that it has three foundational elements. So first there's loss, which can mean death and separation from a loved one, as well as the loss of normality, the loss of what could be, and the loss of what we thought we knew or understood about something or someone. Then there's longing, which is an involuntary yearning for wholeness, for understanding, for meaning, for the opportunity to regain what we've lost. And then there's this idea of feeling lost because grief requires us to reorient every part of our physical, emotional, and social worlds. Brene says that the more difficult it is for us to articulate our experiences of loss, longing, and feeling lost to the people around us, the more disconnected and alone we feel. And I know that's true for me. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about it, all of it. It might get messy, but we're here for it. And as we were drafting our outline for this episode, we realized we have a lot to say about this topic. So we're going to make this into a two-parter. Part one today, we'll focus on our experiences with different types of grief and how grief impacts us, both individually and collectively. And then part two, we'll focus on support and healing that we found in faith spaces and beyond. Anything you want to add to that, Katie? 
That was such a beautiful framing for what is such a difficult topic. And I think it makes sense for something that we've been saying we want to record an episode about for so long that we inevitably have accumulated many thoughts that will (laughs) not fit in one episode. Uh, Who knows? This could become a three-part series. We'll see. (laughs) So I'm glad that we were able to make the space. And really, y'all, Ashley led the way on this one, but to make the space to sit and sit, sit with this really difficult topic and think about it. I think maybe part of our hesitation to do it is that we've just both been inundated with grieving experiences. And so right. having an episode yeah. diving into that kind of felt like, I don't know, an exercise in self-flagellation or something like that. And so, yes, but I think yes, now, now we feel like we can, we can do it. And I was just thinking about mm-hmm. the, the whole idea of grief being all around us. And I was thinking specifically about astrology, which is something I'm, I mildly pay attention to. I'm by no means an expert or even can talk about it intelligently. I'm still figuring out where all my houses are and all that stuff. And (laughs) there's so much overwhelming astrological action around this that I feel like it's almost hard to ignore. Even if you're someone who just briefly looks at it, there's so much going on. Mm -hmm. You know, the the collective, how grief is everywhere is something I've heard a lot of astrologers talking about in terms of where the planets have been over the last three years or so and where they are right now. We've just been mm-hmm. through this eclipse season, which is often a time mm-hmm. of shedding things and cycles coming to an end and things coming to a close. And the week that we are recording is the, the super full moon in Capricorn, which is mm-hmm. another big time of release. And another thing I've been learning about is the Pluto return of the United States, which is also really interesting. It means that Pluto has finally come back to the same place it was when the Declaration of Independence was signed 248 years ago. It actually happened exactly on February 2nd, 2022. Two, 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 two. And I might have said an extra two, but you get what I mean. Lots of twos. (laughs) And Pluto represents death and rebirth. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking even on a personal note, the very first tarot card that I pulled this year on January 1st in the morning was the death card. Mm. It was the death card. Mm -hmm. So grief. I love that card. I love that card too. I was not, I was not afraid of it. I think that's a card that gets a lot of, there's a misconception around the death card that it means. Yes you know, actual death or someone predicting your death. And no, it's really about what we're going to be talking about, which is the cycle of life and how Mm -hmm. death and grief and loss and making our way through it often leads to those beautiful rebirth experiences. And so, but we have to go to that, that place, the place of loss so that we can get to that next chapter. And so I think a lot of us are, are in these times. We're definitely in them collectively and I know it's been touching your life in a very deeply personal way. Yeah. I don't know if I've ever told you this, but speaking of tarot, the death card was the first card I ever pulled. Really? When was that? <laughs> yeah. Do you remember? 2019. Oh, 2019. That's when so much stuff started unraveling in the collective. <laughs> uh-huh. The summer of 2019, we were, um, I was in the middle of a very intense fellowship at work with faith and women. And I was looking for new ways to help process and think about life and 
my journey and all of that. And that's when I got into tarot. Oof. And the death card was the first card I ever pulled. That's right. And I remember thinking, well, you know, I have had a lot of rebirths in my life, it feels like. Career transitions, divorce and remarriage and um, experiencing divorce in my childhood, you know. I just rebirth is something that makes sense to me. And so when I pulled that for the very first time, I was like, oh, so tarot is really going to make me face my stuff. And like, let's describe what's on the what's on the death card, because if you haven't seen it, it's like the Grim Reaper on a horse, on a horse, people dying in its presence. (laughs) So it's it's a very much in your face card. Yes. Isn't there a flower? On the blanket that the horse is wearing, I believe there is a flower mm. that is that symbolizes sort of the new growth and the rebirth and that death can fertilize kind of new beginnings. I'll have to go look at it. I think, I think the Grim Reaper. I have to go look at it now too. <laughs> I know. The, I know. I know. All of that. Um, I I just thought that was interesting. Mm -hmm. And the other thing I wanted to say was we're recording this episode on the week that NASA released the photos from the James Webb telescope. And, you know, you're talking about astrology and a lot of people, I think, roll their eyes at it. And I have always thought of it as more of a game than anything. Uh, Reading my horoscope and things like that have always been kind of a game. But when I see the pictures from the telescope of the far reaches of the universe and the things that are the energy that's out there that we cannot see with our eyes that picture of the Carina nebula mm-hmm. the the really beautiful one with the orange and blue clouds of gas and wind and just radiation activity that we can't see i'm just not going to discount anymore Mm -hmm. that number one there's a lot in this universe we don't know Mm -hmm. and number two there's a lot of cosmic energy in the universe to say that it doesn't have an impact on us cosmic beings in the universe i don't know i just i'm a lot more open to to things like this than i than i once was so anyway i just want to put that out there i love it and if our listeners, if y'all have not seen these photos, they were really making the rounds on media and social media, though. So I, I feel like it was hard not to see them. We'll link it. We'll Go link look. to it. Yeah, we'll link it. It was really um, a breathtaking moment and a nice reminder to just sit with the fact that the universe is big, big and unknowable. Okay, so back to grief. Well, <laughs> grief we still, we're still human experience. We're still spiritual beings having a human experience, which is often difficult. Yes. Even though the universe is beautiful yes. and expanding and mind blowing, we still have to live in these these skin sacks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Our earth suits. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so I will start by talking about how grief is showing up for me right now. As I mentioned in our last episode, I've recently lost both of my grandparents, my grandfather to COVID in March, and then my grandmother shortly after in May. So it's still really fresh, but I'm not in that exposed nerve phase anymore, you know, where you just, everything hurts, everything emotionally, you feel like you're just a bomb ready to go off. I don't feel like that anymore. So I would say I'm moving out of the acute stage, which according to the Columbia Center for Complicated Grief, which we'll link to in the show notes, 
Acute grief includes strong feelings of yearning, longing, and sadness, along with feelings like anxiety, bitterness, anger, remorse, even guilt or shame. The acute phase is where you can't stop thinking about the person who died. It can be hard to concentrate on anything else. The grief just takes over. So I would say I'm moving toward or I'm working on moving toward integrating the grief into my life, which really is just a fancy way of saying I'm adapting to the loss. The grief isn't over. It's never going to be over, but you figure out how to live with it and it finds a place in your life. And that's another definition from the Center for Complicated Grief. They call it integrated grief. So where I am right now, I feel safest and most comfortable when I'm with people who know me well and know what I've been through over the past few months and I don't have to fill people in (laughs) and I don't have to pretend that everything's okay. Like small talk with strangers Mm. or acquaintances is just really hard. Meeting new people is really hard. And some days I'm just not up for it. I have been begging out of a lot of social engagements lately and that can lead to something else that I've been feeling uh, is really a lot of loneliness in my grief because of the isolation, but also because everyone in my family is experiencing their own grief in a different way, which is totally normal and makes total sense. But it can also mean that some days what I need and for instance, what my mom might need could be really different. Like maybe she really needs to talk about my grandparents and share memories and maybe what I need that day is to get my mind off things by doing something fun. So we might be at odds and maybe we can't really be there for each other in that and figuring out how to balance my needs around my grief with the needs of the other folks in my family and having compassionate boundaries around that. It's an ongoing challenge. So Katie, this reminds me of, are you familiar with ring theory? Mm Mm-mm. Okay, this is something that I learned in the Daring Compassion Movement Chaplaincy training that I did back in, was that 2020, I think? Ring theory is this model of support and how to support people going through a trauma or a loss. So if you can imagine concentric circles, there's a person at the center of the loss who is the most affected. And then in each concentric circle moving outward, are the people who are sort of the next level of affected until you get to the outer ring of people who are the least affected. Mm. And the people in the outer rings aim their support inward toward the people in the inner rings moving toward the person most affected. And the person most affected seeks support from the folks in the outer rings. And it's kind of this idea that you don't ask for support from the person in the middle Mm -hmm. because they're the one whose trauma is centered in that moment. But when a whole family is affected, ring theory kind of breaks down because the person in the center ring is constantly shifting and there's a danger around it becoming a competition for whose suffering is more valid or more important. So it's more about who has the emotional capacity at that moment to support the person who needs it most at that moment, which requires a lot of flexibility a lot of self-awareness, and a lot of energy around figuring out what can I hold right now? When do I need to say, I'm sorry, I love you, but I can't hold this today. And knowing that it's okay for me to do that, to say, like, I just can't today. I have a right to do that, and so do the people in my family. So that's something that's been really hard. Um, 
And lastly, I'll wrap up by just saying that a lot of my grief symptoms right now feel similar to my depression. And so it just feels really familiar. And in that way, weirdly, I take comfort in the familiarity of these feelings because I've been there before. I know they'll fade. I also know that it's not linear. I'll have a good day or a series of good days, and then the difficult feelings will come back, and it'll feel like they're out of nowhere, and I have to deal with them again, but they'll pass again. So that is what grief is looking like for me. There's a lot of similarities to how I felt when I realized the pandemic wasn't going away (laughs) and how I feel about the loss of Roe. And I don't think it's an exaggeration to call all of that grief. Who would have ever thought your past bouts of depression are serving as a sort of comfort for you? Hey, I know. As you were talking, I was thinking the same thing. What you're describing sounds so much like the depression I got treated for back in the fall. Yeah. All of those, yeah. All of those symptoms, the, the desire to isolate, the lethargy, the ups and downs, the sense that everything is pointless and has no meaning. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> I think a lot of times grief is what sends us into those depressive states. It's just we don't often think about grief in a more expanded way. And so that's what we're going to talk about more in this episode. And I think there is something really specific with the kind of grief that you're dealing with, which is also compounded by multiple losses. I'm also aware that your family Mm -hmm. experienced a loss of, was it your great uncle, um, the beginning of COVID too? So yeah, that that has yeah. to come up too, and you know, and like you said, it's not just you, but your entire family, and that gets complicated, and it can feel really lonely, like no one can understand your grief journey, which is yeah, really isolating. My grief definitely looks a lot different from yours in terms of the source, but it's also something that we share. So I'm also mindful that you're you're just you've just been dealt with a whole bunch of different kinds of grief, like the grief buffet. <laughs> buffet. I'll have a little of this yeah, and a little of that. Like a whole lot of this one. <laughs> <laughs> but we wanted to talk about yeah. collective grief and disenfranchised mm-hmm. grief, which is something we've talked about in the show before, but I think is worth bringing up again. So let's start with collective grief. And this, this makes sense. I think we can all connect to this. This is connected to extreme losses that are shared by a community or a group of people a country, or in some cases, the entire world. Things like Mm -hmm. COVID, the 2016 Mm -hmm. election, the loss of Roe, mass shootings, Mm -hmm. police violence, the war in Ukraine. Honestly, too many to even keep track of. And these events, these tragedies, make us feel really unsafe. And we know our brains respond to these kinds of things by activating our nervous systems that are designed to help us survive. Mm -hmm. As I was researching this, I found this really interesting webinar that was put on by the American Brain Foundation about a year ago. And I did not know the American Brain Foundation was a thing. There's a foundation for everything. But it makes sense. It featured the work of Dr. Lisa Shulman, who wrote a book called Before and After Loss, a neurologist's perspective on loss, grief, and our brain. And she talks about traumatic events, both personal tragedies and collective ones, like the ones I just talked about, and how they affect our brains specifically. No matter the kind of loss we're experiencing, our brains and our bodies are impacted. And some of these we mentioned, you know, it affects our memory, our behaviors, our decision-making, our sleep our immune systems, our cardiovascular systems, and lots of other things. And all of this has to do with being in that survival mode. 
And we know that we can handle that in the short term, right? Like we've probably all heard about a stress response and how that's intended for short term things Mm, when we feel like we're under threat. And when we're inundated, like we have been with event after event and loss after loss over and over and over again, that survival response is reinforced over and over again. It becomes our default setting. So we, many of us are living in a state of chronic stress. I would say all of us are living in a state of chronic stress. Yes. We just might not be totally aware that that's what's going on. And it just makes sense to me when I look at the collective and how fear-driven we are as a society, even as I'm talking, I'm thinking about how I feel like for the U.S., 9-11 really issued in, ushered in a lot of that um, fear-based yeah, energy. Yeah, I agree. And I don't want to oversimplify things and be reductionist, but I, I think that collective grief and trauma has to play a role in the ways that we are interacting with each other right now. It, it just it yeah, has to. I agree. And I was thinking mm-hmm. specifically about me. When I'm out at the grocery store, and my family and I have never stopped masking. We have just – it's just what we do. And I see yeah. everyone who isn't wearing a mask. It is rare now in North Carolina to see people wearing masks. Same here. I have a couple of reactions. One, I start panicking. Like, I can feel my breath get shallow, and you can really tell when you're wearing a mask. Mm. And my heart starts to race. Like, I feel I feel under threat when I'm just in the store. And then related, I get enraged because I start seeing everyone who isn't masked as a threat to me. Like, I really can mm. feel it where I, like, I get angry. And this is totally a stress response. You know, it's it's related to the fact that for almost, well, two and a half years at this point, we've been trying to avoid getting this virus and it's not going away. And so just being out in the public makes me feel like I'm in danger, especially in a place like the grocery store where I don't know anyone. Yeah. There's something about being in spaces like that where I almost feel anonymous that I feel it the most acutely. Like when I'm with people I know, I don't feel it, but in big spaces I do. So yeah, it just kind of makes me feel like I want to hole up in my house and never leave because this is where I feel safe most of the time. There's something really sad about that, that that's just the position that we've been forced to take because there is no collective movement, I guess, or or collective agreement that we're going to address COVID in a particular way. Mm-hmm. This every person for themselves yes. way that we've done it in the U.S. has just really – this is the result of that. And – it's just it's just it's so hard. And I understand what you're talking about. After the road decision came down for a few days, I didn't want to leave the house because I couldn't be around anyone unless I knew they supported abortion access. Mm. Part of that is because I needed to feel understood in my grief. And part of it was also because I had a lot of fear and rage at our political structures that I didn't want to accidentally unleash on an unsuspecting individual person. Mm. (laughs) I had to take time to care for myself and remember and come back to the knowledge that just as I am not individually responsible for saving Roe, the evangelical Christians in my life aren't individually responsible for killing it either. Mm -hmm. You know, I honestly don't know how to heal this kind of grief, but I suspect that screaming at someone in the grocery store is not going to do oh, it. Oh, if only. <laughs> I think that's going to make it worse. If only. <laughs> and I do just want to say, 
I know that I have been through a lot of personal loss lately, but I do think it's important to acknowledge that this, even for those of our listeners or anybody that has is feeling this collective grief but hasn't been through a personal loss, like your grief is just as valid mm-hmm. and just as important and just as deserving of healing and care and compassion as someone who has lost a loved mm-hmm. one. That is something I really needed to hear toward the end of 2020 when I was just spiraling and feeling like because I believe we talked about this in our burnout episode, I was feeling like because my suffering wasn't as acute as other people's that I didn't, I wasn't allowed to talk about it. I wasn't allowed to feel it. I wasn't allowed to acknowledge it. And I wasn't allowed, I, it wasn't something deserving of healing because it wasn't something that existed. Mm. So I really want to say and make sure that folks understand that this, this collective sense of just despair, it's real. It is grief. Mm -hmm. It's deserving of acknowledgement and exploration and it's deserving of our witnessing and our presence and I just want to make sure that that people know that that you have a right to seek help and care and comfort in this time of grief just as anybody who's lost a loved one and later in our episode we're going to focus more on healing and supporting actually no we're going to move that to our part two yes because we got We really had a lot to say here, so we're going to move the stuff we're going to talk about healing and support for individual and collective grief. We're going to move that to our part two. So for now, let's just keep talking about the types of grief that we're experiencing or our listeners might be experiencing. I really appreciate what you just said because it reminds me of conversations I've had with people about trauma too that... Mm-hmm. We almost feel like it's a competition, and if it's not the absolute yep. most extreme version of trauma, then one, it isn't trauma, and two, it doesn't deserve our mm-hmm. time and attention. We just have to keep moving and centering the people who are most impacted and allowing ourselves the space to recognize the impact that events, missed opportunities, losses of all kinds impact us is really an act of self-love. Mm, yep. And allowing yep. ourselves to name it for what it is and that it is impacting us. I mean, I almost wonder if part of it is just there's a, a coping strategy to say that's not – that isn't grief because if I recognize it as grief, then I actually have to sit with the loss or yeah. that's not really trauma, which means I don't really have to deal with with this thing. I'm just going to continue in my life unaware of the ways that this thing that happened to me impacts me. So as we've talked about, self-care and self-love are not always these beautiful things. They often are. Yeah. Healing is mm-hmm. healing is a word that I have come to really have a love-hate relationship with because healing is not – it's dirty work. It's shadow work. It's painful. So painful. Yeah. It's interesting that you bring this up because I think there is something about how we are not acknowledging the losses of COVID that keeps us collectively in this state of dysfunction where we're going to stay in this fear and rage state when we go into the grocery store because we're not acknowledging and looking in the face the truth that we've lost a million people 
and counting and it's not over and we're in this denial and because of that like there's just no there's no path for healing until we face the loss mm-hmm. and the tragedy and the trauma and so i i just think all of that is connected it's so true that collective denial i think is what you're talking about now we're seeing a variant mm-hmm. returning that's severe and i just think we are we are not equipped to handle Mm-mm. to handle more of this and yet here it comes i mean it's just like we're not equipped to deal with loss and here it comes again mm-hmm. you know going back to the the loss of Roe, as you were talking about and how that felt i have likened it to the death of a loved one who's terminally ill because we knew it was coming we all knew oh, yeah. that Roe was going to be overturned, especially after the leaked draft on May 2nd. We knew. Yeah. And even for me, I still, when it became real, it felt categorically different. Yes, I think it is very similar to grieving a person who is terminally ill It's like you're holding your breath, waiting for the person to finally pass so that you can give yourself the permission you need to fall apart. Mm -hmm. And that is exactly the experience that I felt. I mean, yes, you're right. Years. We knew that we knew that Roe was dying and but we had to stay strong. We had to stay optimistic. We had to keep moving. We had to put plans in place for after. Yeah, and all of this time we're centering the folks most impacted, the folks who need abortion care, and it's like when the other shoe finally dropped, when they finally killed Roe, because that is what the Supreme Court did, (laughs) when they finally killed Roe, we could finally weep and lament and give ourselves the space to do that. And. Yeah, and then the fact that not everyone sees it as a loss, right? Like that's Ugh. even more complicated. Yeah. Okay, so I think yeah. <laughs> I think it's helpful because we're talking about a specific example of this concept of disenfranchised grief, mm. which is such a helpful framework for me that I never knew about until I started writing my book, A Complicated Choice, and I was introduced to this um, psychologist and Lutheran minister. Dr. Ken Doka, I talked to him really early on about this concept because he really helped me see how how abortion could fit within this frame because I knew that people had experiences of grief around abortion that were like categorically different from how people mm. felt about losing a child. But there was some connection there and I I didn't really have a way to talk about it. And so he helped me understand that disenfranchised grief is Grief that is not openly acknowledged or socially Mm -hmm. accepted or publicly mourned. And when we Mm. think about our white, patriarchal, Christian-dominant society, the only kind of grief that counts is the death of an immediate loved one. Right. That's what you get bereavement leave from work for. (laughs) Yeah, that's it. Anything else. And you – it never happened. (laughs) Right. Like a miscarriage or the loss Mm. of a relationship or the Mm -hmm. loss of a pet, you know, Mm -hmm. these, there's just so many losses that we don't talk about as losses or that are, 
that are naturally grief-inducing experiences that we have. And I was even thinking about, you know, losing a job or even just ending a job like you did or losing our abilities, like long-term illnesses or injuries or accidents. Like there's so many things that fall under this concept of disenfranchised grief. And what makes it complicated is the grief itself not being recognized, you know, within, sometimes even within your own self. But then to have no one else see it as a loss or even know about it happening at all just compounds those feelings of isolation. And like I was saying, with with the loss of Roe, I don't think a whole lot of people are talking about it in grieving terms. That's why I'm so glad to work for a faith-rooted organization because we talk about lament. And that's been really helpful for people who are feeling all of those feelings and feel like, well, I should be getting to work right away and responding, and I'm feeling a certain way about this. That's really hard. And giving people to name the fact that they're feeling deep, deep sadness and despair about this is so very important. So just like going back to this whole idea, like we're we're not really good at providing support for people, even who, who are going through those socially recognized times of grief, like after a loved one has passed away, as you have shared with me, like people don't always know what to say and they often say hurtful things. So then if we don't know how to do that, we are definitely not equipped to hold space for people's disenfranchised grief. Yeah. I am so glad that you brought up support because we're going to pause here and we're going to save that for part two of our conversation, which will come out next month. We'll focus there on the ways that our faith communities support us in our grief, the ways that we are addressing collective grief, and maybe the ways that we could be addressing collective grief better, and the things that we've found helpful and maybe not helpful as we've moved through our own grief. So we'll talk about all that in part two. I do want to acknowledge that we are kind of leaving this in an open-ended way. (laughs) We're talking about the pain and the experience of grief, and we're not bringing any closure to that really in this conversation. Well, isn't that like grief though? I, yes, exactly. <laughs> so I just wanted to recognize that. So, you know, maybe uh, take a minute after listening to this episode and go do something light and fun and <laughs> get your head out of this space. Katie, is there anything last thoughts you want to say before we wrap up? I'm just really thankful for the ways that you have been open with me and with our listeners about your own family's grief. I think even those experiences are not something that people talk about publicly. And I think everyone listening can connect to this conversation in one way or another. And I think even just talking about these things can provide some healing. So I think we are doing some healing and we'll, we'll do even more of it in our next episode. Yeah. You know, Strangely, I was, as we were drafting the outline for this, I, at first I was dreading it because I was like, this is going to hurt. But the more we got into it, the more I actually found myself letting go of some things Mm. like on the page in our outline and thinking, helping to process, I guess. And so, um, yeah, I just appreciate you for being open to talking about this and um, for also, you know, holding space. Uh, that's a big, it's a significant thing that we can do for people in their grief. And so 
I appreciate you as well. Yes, holding space. We'll be talking about that too <sighs> on our next episode. Yes. We cannot <laughs> That's going to come up. Underestimate the power of just being there, not saying anything. <laughs> just <laughs> just show up, leave the casserole, <laughs> give me a hug and go home. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that is it for part one about the types of grief and how grief is affecting us right now. There's always more to say. And if any of our listeners have thoughts or experiences that you'd like to share, we would love to hear them. So you can send us an email or message us on Instagram or leave a comment on a post. Before I go, I want to lift up a couple of resources specifically dealing with reproductive loss. That is our past episode called Reproductive Loss from way back in February 2020, but it's still a really evergreen Mm -hmm. episode. (laughs) And as well as the website abortionswelcome.org. At Abortions Welcome, if you search for grief, there are rituals and other resources for dealing with things like the loss of a wanted pregnancy. And there's also resources for normalizing grief as part of the abortion process for some people. So go check those out. And since this was a heavy topic, maybe we could end by sharing one thing in our lives right now that's helping us through this time of grief. Yes, mine's very short. The talking, talking bird videos on TikTok. Yes. Or just like birds singing, mimicking humans. There's one that that Matt sent me yesterday. That's this bird singing in key to Hotel California. (laughs) Please send me that. Keep sending me these. You've sent me a few. They do bring just like a little (laughs) bit of joy and levity. (laughs) Uh, There's a lot we can can learn from our creature friends. Absolutely. What about you? (laughs) Yeah. Something that's bringing me joy right now is that Avery's learning to swim, and it is very fun. This is the first summer he hasn't been afraid of the water, and he's just a little fish right now, and I love it. I love watching him. He does these hilarious jumps off the side of the pool. He thinks he's diving or cannonballing, but really he's just belly flopping. Ow, does that not hurt? I guess it doesn't hurt when you're four. He swears it doesn't. It looks like it does, (laughs) but he gets up and he's like, I'm okay. So he's just having a great time, and I'm just trying to soak up this four-year-old energy because there's just so much cuteness and affection, and he's hilarious, and he also drives me nuts, (laughs) but there's a lot of just adorableness right now that I know is not going to last forever, so I'm just trying to soak it up and be. Four-year-olds are definitely a turning point, like when things start to get much better. I So you're you're at the beginning of a lot of good. I'll just say it that way. I'm excited. Yeah. (laughs) I'm looking forward to that. (laughs) All right. That's it for this time. We'll be back with our second episode on grief next month. Talk to you then. Talk to you then. Thanks for listening. You can find us on our website, kindredspodcast.com. That's kindreds with an S. Or you can send us an email at team at kindredspodcast.com. You can also follow me, Katie, on Twitter at Katie Zay. That's Katie with an E-Y-Z-E-H. Please send us your thoughts, ideas, and questions. We'd love to hear from you. 